Good morning. Boy, this would be an, have been a great morning to sleep in. <laughs> I think next, next Thursday is going to be even a better morning to sleep in. It's going to be daylight savings time. It'll be dark outside. But, man, all this rain. I, I felt like we should probably go to Noah and the flood today and look at that. Uh, it would be very relevant. Uh, but we are in an amazing text in Romans 12. Please turn there. And here we come to a major turning point in uh, Paul's letter. And it's very typical of Paul, as you know from Ephesians as well, that he first of all presents the gospel to us, telling us what God has done for us. And indeed, we've seen in Romans 1 through 11, he's done amazing things for us. He has uh, elected us before all time and space. He's loved us before we were even born or conceived or thought of or before the human race was put on the planet. He loved us. We've seen that when we sinned and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul said in Romans 3, uh, that he sent his son Jesus Christ, incarnate of a virgin, to live a perfect life and to earn for us our standing before God so that our standing before God depends not upon our performance but upon trusting the performance of another. He substituted his life for ours, his death for ours. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And not only that, but everything in life, Paul said in Romans 8, is working together for our good by God's providence. So we've seen these mercies of God, the grace of God, which has just been lavished upon undeserving sinners like ourselves. It's been an amazing story that we've been studying here for these past months, this story of God's love for sinners. And it's taken us months to, to examine, even in a cursory way, uh, the doctrine that Paul has laid out in Romans 1 through 11. And we saw that he, he showed in Romans 9 through 11, once again, that God's mercy was to be poured out upon Jews and Gentiles. He assigned all of them to disobedience so that he could, what, have mercy upon them all. So whether you're a Gentile sinner or a Jewish sinner, now you're in one body, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, filled with His Holy Spirit. And Paul ends this discourse with that great doxology, one of the greatest ones that you'll find anywhere at the end of Romans 11, praising God for what God has done. But in Pauline fashion, after showing us what God has done for us, he now shows us what we are to do for God. So as they say, you have belief and then you have behavior. You have Creed, and then you have conduct. You have, do, you have doctrine, and then you have duty. Or as we often say, you have the indicative, and now it's the imperative. That's classic Pauline structure, and it's classic Christian thought. We think and contemplate on what God has done for us. That's the first thing that we do. We receive what's been done for us. And having received that and contemplating it, we then we then look and examine at what it means for us. What are the implications of this? And this is vitally important, as we'll see, as Paul now turns us toward Christian practice after looking at Christian doctrine. And these two go together and cannot be separated. Uh, some folks try to separate them. Some uh, try to make the Christian faith just simply a matter of what a person knows and the sophistication of his doctrinal uh, framework and his knowledge of certain things about the Bible. All those things are important, but that cannot stand alone. A Christian is not just a man who has 
the knowledge of God intellectually. He has the knowledge of God personally, which leads to a personal walk with God. There's the Christian life. And the life goes with the doctrine. You cannot separate them. You cannot be a Christian man if you just have the uh, intellectual knowledge of the Bible. Satan has all the intellectual knowledge of the Bible, more than we do. And he certainly is not a believer. No, he, he believes intellectually. He assents intellectually to everything the Bible teaches. He knows it's true, but he hates every piece of it and puts none of it into practice. So the Christian is the one who knows it and believes it and puts it into practice. Likewise, some try to say that we can live the Sermon on the Mount or follow the Ten Commandments and not have this experiential or intellectual knowledge of God. Wrong. You really can't be good without God. That's what the Bible teaches us. Why? Because our conduct is not just what human beings see on the outside. Our conduct also consists of the motives of our hearts. God sees everything from the inside out. And therefore, for us to practice the Christian life, our external conduct has to come from an internal heart that is loving God and responding to Him. Therefore, that's why the Christian faith must be doctrinal. You can't just get a list of rules or, or a list of uh, mission strategies and then go out and try to perform them. They all have to come out of a contemplative life that's reflecting upon what God has done for us and then out of gratitude serving our neighbors ourselves. So the love of God cannot be separated from the love of neighbor. So the love of God is because uh, we know what He's done for us. We study doctrine. We study redemptive history. And then the love of neighbor are the commandments that He gives us to live our lives in this world. So Paul shows us here and over and over again how these things have to be held together. And sometimes it's a little unfortunate that we would spend five months talking about doctrine. Now we've, of course, done what we should do. We've looked at the doctrine and we've been applying it as we've been going along. That's what we must always do. And then also, when you look at commandments like the Ten Commandments, you must always look at the gospel at the same time. So when you're studying your Bible, if it's a section that's doctrinal, you'll always be looking for the practical applications. If it's a section which is instructive or it is hortatory, you'll be looking for the doctrine that's behind it and that drives it. So the Christian always integrates the Christian has a mind, the Christian has a heart, the Christian has hands and feet. That's what Paul is showing us. Now with that, let's look at Romans 12. And let me just say the first two verses that we'll spend some time looking at this morning are the introduction to several chapters that will follow. So offering our bodies as living sacrifices is the superscription for much of which follows all the way through the middle of chapter 15. When we get to the middle of chapter 15, Paul will then talk about his own personal ministry and how he wants them to be engaged with them in ministry. And then when we get to 16, we'll see he has his final greetings. And as we always find, even in Paul's final greetings, there's much for us to learn and to apply to our own day. But running through chapter 15, we'll see then several ways in which we live out our lives as living sacrifices. The first one we'll look at today. How do you assess yourself and how you can contribute to the body of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he addresses is how do you assess yourself before God 
Take ownership for the spiritual gifts he's given you and use them in the body of Christ. Then he'll show us how we're to love one another in chapter 12. Then he'll show us how we're to love our enemies in chapter 12. Then he'll show us how we're to relate to the state in chapter 13. Then he'll show us how we're to relate to the law of God. We'll see that the law of God is not just for Old Testament saints. It's for us too. He'll show us that in chapter 13. Then he'll show us how we relate to the future, the coming of Jesus Christ, the end times. How do we relate to that? He addresses that in chapter 13. And then in chapter 14 and 15, he's going to show us how we address the divisions within the church. Jew and Gentile, weak conscience, strong conscience. How do we live in community in peace and guard the consciences of one another? All of these are implications of offering your bodies as living sacrifices. So now we are into the duty section of Romans. It is taking everything that we've been learning and applying it in practical real day life. Let's look at verses, 12, uh, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, first of all, let's look at the first part of verse 1 and notice the motive of the living sacrifice is gratitude for God's mercy. The motive is gratitude. It's important that we be properly motivated in our work for Jesus Christ. It's not proper for us to be serving Him out of mere guilt and shame. We live in a guilt-based culture. In a culture, most cultures are shame-based cultures, and you'll find that so much of what we're taught is by guilt and shame. Or in the case of Greek culture, which we've uh, inherited uh, in in this country to a great degree, uh, it's an honor-based, which is similar to a shame-based culture. So do this for the sake of honor, we say. Uh, honor your country, honor your family, honor yourself. It's a matter of male honor to do this, that, and the other. And you can see the motive is basically self-referential. is to honor myself or honor this group or that group or that group to which I belong. But the Christian motive is not honor. The Christian motive is gratitude for the grace of God toward us. It's a desire to glorify Him out of thanksgiving for what He's done. So once again, you'll see the Christian, right from the beginning, the Christian conduct 
is moved by a massive sense of gratitude to the Lord. That's to be the dominant motive in the Christian life. It has to be cultivated because your mama and your daddy tried to guilt manipulate you to do everything. They taught you, well, you know you'll have a bad reputation if you do this. You'll know you'll not be successful if you do All kinds of motives that are given to us as kids and now as adults. Christians have to rethink everything. And it, it's, when you become a new Christian, you're working counterintuitively because you've been motivated uh, in, in a certain way. I, I know a young man, who, it took him months to become a Christian because his whole life, his whole young adult life, and back to his teen years, had been motivated by anger. And he knew it. He was wise enough to know that he was an anger-motivated person. And he knew, if he became a Christian, that there was a different motivational framework here, that it was sweeter, it was more positive. And the reason he didn't become a Christian for some time is he couldn't figure out how to live life like that. He couldn't figure out how to be successful. He, he had been so used to being Anger motivated. Well, you know what? You, you have your motives and you've been working that way for a long time. You're like a drug addict. That's how you know how to live. That's how you know how to be successful. Fear-based, guilt-based. You know, I, there were some successful men who met together in a prayer group for 20 years. And one of them told me, after 20 years, they finally admitted to each other the reason they were all successful executives was because of the fear of failure. If you ain't going up, you're going down. And they were just driven by fear of being a louse, of being a failure. So whatever your motivational framework is, you need to know what it is and then intentionally work against that motivational framework so that you may be a grace-motivated uh, follower of Jesus Christ. Now notice, even in the, in the appeal that the, Paul gives, that the Apostle Paul gives here, how gracious it is. Paul himself had been a guilt performance-based uh, religious leader. That's how he had operated, out of fear and guilt manipulation and even killing people who didn't agree with him. So over those more than a decade of sort of reworking his whole system and renewing himself, he had to change his motivations. Now look at what he says here. I appeal to you. He doesn't say, I command of you or I'm going to chop your head off if you don't. Look at, the, look at the exhortation here. It's the same word that we use for, for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. He says, parakaleo, I appeal to you. So he's, he's coming to us as a beggar. Isn't this amazing? The Apostle Paul, none less than the Apostle Paul, is begging us? Yes. Why? Because he's been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows it's highly inappropriate for someone who's a, a fed beggar to go start commanding other beggars around as though we're, some, we're not beggars ourselves. Look at the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you, he says. But notice that he also appeals because of something we've been saying. Practice goes with doctrine. Notice this. The Apostle also knows that practice does not automatically follow doctrine. Practice does not automatically follow the experience of conversion. This is highly important for us to grasp because many today are saying things like we used to say, let go and let God. If you just let God do it through you and just kind of release yourself and give yourself over to God as kind of a floating leaf, He'll blow you where He wants to blow you. 
And today often, especially in Presbyterian circles, we say, just grasp again the doctrine of sonship. If you just know that you're a child of God, if you just grasp that, everything else will follow. Well, no, it doesn't actually just follow automatically. You do need to know you're a son. You do need to let go of your old ways of doing things. But brothers, you've got to grab hold of something else. You've got to hear the commandments of God. They're thundering at us from the heavens. And Paul is begging with us to listen to them. So it's both and. It's the conversion experience. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's also the precepts and duties that God lays down for us that we listen to carefully. It's kind of like a train that has an engine but no tracks. What good is that going to do you? Get all the steam engine going. Got all the power you can ever imagine. But no tracks. You're going nowhere. You have to have the power of the engine and then you have to have the tracks to run on. What Paul's giving us here are the tracks. We've got to pay attention to them. We've got to know where we're going. And we have to be very careful and scrupulous about doing it. So he appeals to us. There's an urgency here, but it's done in a very tender way. Notice also the tenderness of how he addresses us. He calls us brothers. Now you know that the Roman church to which he's writing was largely made up of poor people and slaves. Now the only way Paul reached the uppity, up, uppity group was because he was in prison and through the prison guard he got to Caesar's household. So he, he did preach to the wealthy too. And there were people, there were good business people from Rome like Prisca and Aquila uh, who, who were native Romans. They, they traveled because they, they were Jewish and had been scared out of the city. But there were some prominent business leaders and others from Caesar's household that became Christians. But dominantly, this was a poor church made up of probably half slaves. And what does he say to them, brothers? He didn't, he didn't say, he didn't use his apostolic titles, just called himself a brother. How important this is. How the church today would be changed. How your church would be changed. If everybody in that church were considered brother and sister by you family, with all the rights and all the affections that go with family. That's what Paul is saying. You see how tender this appeal is? He's coming up under us to beg with us. He's calling us brothers, even though he is uh, the great apostle. And then he says, by the mercies of God. This is the key word, mercies. And you'll find it in chapter 9. You'll find it in chapter 11, where he talks about God's mercy to us. He says, by those mercies... Because of what he's done, recorded in 111. Now let's go 12 and following. And these mercies are multiple, as we've mentioned. Now, secondly, notice the means of this living sacrifice. And the means is your whole self. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, notice he says bodies. This would have been somewhat alien to the pagan world to which he was preaching. The philosophical framework there was uh, pre-Gnostic, but generally was in this sort of mode, that spiritually what's important about you is your spirit. Your body is basically dead weight. And your salvation in a pagan uh, perspective was being released from your body and just simply being pure spirit. Spirit is good, 
material is bad. That was the general framework. So since you're a material being in this life, getting rid of the evil material part of yourself would be your liberation. There are some people today that think that. Just being liberated from the body is their salvation. Paul says, no. You not only bring your soul to God, you not only bring your spiritual life to God, you bring the body he made and gave to you. You bring it to him and lay it on the altar. The Christian faith is very gritty. It's very physical. It has to do with what you do as well as what you think. Notice how John Stott put it in his commentary that that some of you have read. He said, no worship, and we could say no service, is pleasing to God, which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. So there's nothing more grotesque than seeing a church do this and then ignore the poor. Seeing a church do this and then show preference to the rich and the powerful. Nothing more grotesque than that. So our spiritual worship, our spiritual service is very physical. And that's the reason that churches and individuals and Christian families must be engaged in the physical aspects of life and see the redemptive power of God in the physical realm. Now, how do we do this? He says a living sacrifice. What does he mean there? In the Old Testament, if you're looking for the most common word to describe an act of worship, what would that word be? The word sacrifice. So that any time in the Old Testament, when I wanted to go to the temple and worship God, I would take a lamb or a ram or a bull, or some animal to be killed, sacrificed on the altar. And the idea, of course, was the blood shed for that animal was in place of my blood. So these were substitutionary sacrifices. I was offering them instead of myself. I'm worthy to die because of my sin, but I lay over this animal. And you'll notice that God demanded of them that they bring their best animal to be slain. It was tempting to think, well, the animal's going to be slain and, you know, it doesn't matter. I'll just take my weakest animal, my lame animal, uh, the one that is not really the kind I want to breed, you know, for, for more animals. I'll take that one because it's going to die anyway. That was the temptation. And during times of spiritual uh, depression in Israel, that's exactly what they did. And in Malachi chapter 1, you'll see Malachi takes out after them. It's his first concern is their puny worship. And he says, you're bringing, the Lord says to you, Israelites, you're bringing to me your blemished animals. He said, shut the doors. I'd rather not have your worship than have you bring blemished animals. And so what we learn in the Old Testament, the most common form of worship is sacrifice. And sacrifices are not automatically acceptable. They're only acceptable if it's your best. And we need to learn this in the Christian church. There's a lot of activity going on in worship services. But you know what? Not all of it is acceptable. The worship that is acceptable to God is coming in the name of Jesus Christ and for His glory. And it's being done according to His Word. Just as in the Old Testament, He told us what kind of animals to bring forward. In the New Testament, He's also given us principles for worship to say, this is what's acceptable to me. This is what is a pleasing aroma to me. 
Now, in the New Testament, it's interesting that you have three places where the Old Testament word for sacrifice is used. So there are three tangible ways in which we, even in the New Testament, can bring sacrifices to God. You know, we don't bring animals anymore, so what do we bring? Well, of course, first of all, we understand that the great sacrifice that has replaced all of the bloody sacrifices is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I pour out my life like a drink offering on the sacrifice of Christ. And actually he says, I do that on the sacrifice you make. So his life was a drink offering. It wasn't a bloody substitutionary sacrifice. It was a sacrifice, but it wasn't an atoning sacrifice, and neither is your life. Your life is a drink offering being poured out on the great bloody offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the only one who can atone for our sins. So that great sacrifice has already been offered. And when we come to church, when we come to worship in private or in public, we're coming with that sacrifice. We're coming in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, through the mediation and merit of Jesus Christ. So that great sacrifice has been offered for us. But we still have our drink offerings, our sacrifices that we can pour out. What are those? Well, in Hebrews 13, Paul says that when you... Praise His name. It's a spiritual sacrifice. So when you go to church and you sing, and you sing with your heart, it's a sacrifice. Even if the person in front of you thinks you're way off key, it doesn't matter. You're singing with your heart. You're singing lustily to the Lord, as Wesley used to put it. And you're singing as a sacrifice to the Lord. You're giving Him something tangible. So when we sing, it's not just an option. Hey, for those of you who like music, hey, join in with us. Or you know what? If you can contribute to what the choir's already doing, go ahead and sing out. Otherwise, the rest of you just listen. That's the way most people act. Or if you go to a contemporary service, hey, man, we turned up the PA system. Just sit back and let your rib cage rattle with the PA system and let the band do it for you. And, you know, just get your coffee and drink and listen, chat with each other. It's kind of like a concert, you know. That's the way people treat worship. No. The worship that is acceptable to God is not drinking tea and coffee and chatting with each other while the band is performing for you. Neither is it listening to a choir and mumbling along every once in a while. It's giving your voice to the Lord bodily. Remember, this Christian worship is very physical. So you say, I can't sing very well. Well, start. Sing as best, the best you can. You say, well, I'm old. Well, do it before it's too late. Get it going. Sing, offer something to the Lord. It pleases Him. You say, well, it'll make no difference to the poor in Memphis. No, but it'll make a difference to the Lord. And that's the one we've come to worship. He wants it. He wants His children to sing. Sing out. When the liturgies are there in your church or responsive reason, uh, readings, speak up. When there are vows to be taken, speak up. When there's some part for you to play verbally, speak up. That's your physical offering to the Lord. Also in Philippians 4, you have another example of sacrifice. Paul says to them in Philippians 4, this dear church that he loved so much, who had sent him supplies while he was in prison, he said, this is like a sweet aroma before the Lord. It's a sacrifice. So our gifts to expand the kingdom of God are sacrifices. They're tangible offerings. That's the reason I say in the day of, of doing everything digitally, you know what? If you can... Uh, give physically in the worship service. I always encourage that. Why? 
because that's part of your tangible physical worship is to take the tangible physical physical assets that you have and handing them over to the Lord for His glory. So that's what we want to do is be involved in sacrifice. Now thirdly, look at Romans 12. That's the other example of the word sacrifice. And here the Apostle Paul is saying, look, you don't just sing and put your offering in the plate. You put your whole self in the plate. I remember my predecessor at Lookout Mountain, George Long, one day when they were collecting the offering, the ushers used to put the offering up in front of the communion table on the slate floor. And George would go behind the communion table and offer the offertory prayer. But in this instance, they put all the plates right here, and George stepped on them, and all the coins went, just went everywhere. Well, before George prayed, he said, let it never be said that the Presbyterian pastor in this town didn't offer his all in the offering plate today. <laughs> so that's the key. Offer your bodies, your whole body. Put it in the offering plate. Put your whole self before the Lord. So every time you come before the Lord, you are asking Him to take your whole self, body and soul, as a living sacrifice, not one that's killed like the animals. We're letting you live, at least for now. But you're a living sacrifice before the Lord. And notice that this is holy and acceptable to God. How do we live a living sacrifice? Well, living a holy life. And why do we do so? Look at the conclusion. It is your spiritual worship. Now, the word spiritual is very interesting. It's translated in different ways. I think the RSV translates it reasonable worship. And I actually prefer that translation because the word here in Greek is the word uh, from which we get the word logic. So it's your logical worship. And what does the apostle mean here? It is spiritual worship, but it's only logical. Why? If Jesus Christ laid down his whole life for you and shed his blood that you would have eternal life. Is it not just logical that the only response is that you give him your whole life to follow him and to be in his service? So offering your bodies as living sacrifices is just logical thinking after what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. So the means of the living sacrifice is your whole self given over to God for his service. Gentlemen, in your small groups and in your private meditations, this is what you need to be thinking about. How can I more fully, more obediently, more faithfully give my whole self to the Lord? What are you holding back this morning? What in your life is not given over to Him? What little part have you carved off for the satisfaction of your flesh? What aspect of your relationships have you said I just can't tackle that now which is to say I don't want to do that that's that's another version of no what areas of your life have you said no to the Lord in and come to him today and say Lord I want to give you everything in my life that's the only logical worship there is and actually it's the only acceptable worship there is how can you worship God who has given you everything with part of yourself. It's impossible. It's totally unacceptable. So the only way we can worship is continually to come to Him and ask Him to take everything that we know about ourselves to give it to the one, to everything we know about Him. And of course we don't do that perfectly. We won't until we get home. But we're continually seeking and aspiring 
and repenting toward that standard. That's Christian conduct. Nothing less than that is acceptable Christian conduct. That's what the apostle is saying. I plead with you to grasp this and stop playing Christian games and stop trying to be a partial Christian. That is not a Christian at all, he says. I plead with you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, thirdly, notice verse 2. You say, all that time took one verse. Well, sorry about that. We'll move a little bit more rapidly. But verse 2 is a very important verse because here he's showing us the mentality of the sacrifice. The mentality is a renewed mind. Everything changes. The mind is the window to your soul, the Puritans used to say. The mind is what sheds light on everything else in your being. You've got to take your mind seriously. You know, it's one thing for Christians to think a particular way. It'd be better if they'd just think at all. And you know, when you look at even the political campaign that's going on, you find Christians who just fall head over heels for someone who's not even nearly a Christian. And they have religious devotion to his cause. You see this almost in every campaign where Christians will get divided and zealous. I mean, angrily zealous about their political positions. And just showing that they haven't been thinking very much at all about the kingdom of God. Just think. The renewing of your mind is what's at the key of offering your bodies as living sacrifices. Your body is going to go where your head tells it to go. Well, actually, it's where your heart tells you to go. But the head is going to talk to the heart. The heart is, going to, is the center of your disposition. And the heart is headquarters. It's going to tell your body where to go. How are you going to put your body into service if you don't get your brain going right? Your mind. So the Apostle Paul is saying the mentality of this is your mind. There are two, two movements here. One is negative. One is positive. Once again, the Christian life, because we live in, a sin, in sinful flesh ourselves, we have indwelling sin. And because we live in a broken world that's sinful and adulterous, we're always having to renounce things. So you both renounce and embrace. At the same time, you must. You can't just embrace without renouncing. And it's going to do you no good to renounce without embracing. So Paul shows us how we do both. First, we renounce the world's mentality. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Or as Philip says, do not be, somebody help me, shaped into its mold. So do not be conformed to this world. You'll, I put some Old Testament texts there where the prophets are continually, <coughs> along with Moses, encouraging the saints not to be shaped into the ways of the nations. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, you're salt and light, you're light on a hill. You're salt Salt savers, salt stings, salt's countercultural. You've got to be different from the surrounding nations and the surrounding thought forms. You've got to expect that. And you've got to delight in it that God has chosen you out of this dark world to be a different man, to think differently, not to be conformed to the ways of thinking that are all around us. Just last week, uh, my friend Sandy Webb, who's the rector of Holy Communion Church, um, convened a group of about 50 clergy birds. Boy, that'd be a meeting some of you all would like to go to. 50 clergy birds from all different kinds of backgrounds, Hispanics and blacks and whites and liberals and evangelicals and 
Jewish people and Catholics and Protestants. I mean, just a total mix. And, uh, and uh, the speaker was a fairly well-known Old Testament uh, professor and author named Walter Brueggemann. I don't expect you to know him. And, uh, no, and I'm not recommending him. He's, he's not, uh, certainly not an evangelical in the way he approaches the Bible. But Brueggemann's an interesting man. And uh, in his brief talk, he, just, he said, I want to talk to you about totalisms. And, of course, he was quoting Robert J. Lifton, who wrote on this topic going all the way back into the 50s and 60s when he was interviewing people who had been brainwashed in the Chinese communist uh, regime. And he debriefed these students who escaped and came to America and, and looked at the whole concept of what it means to be in a totalistic environment. And what he means by totalism, it's not just totalitarianism. That would be a political totalism but it can be a socio-economic, cultural totalism where there are only certain ways of thinking that are allowed or that are approved. A totalism is a way of thinking that is very restrictive and it excludes all other forms of thinking and it uses shame and guilt to conform everybody to its way of thinking. So he's been studying totalisms for, and he's, he's about 90 years old now, but he's been doing this for for 60 years, 70 years. And uh, Brueggemann picked up on this and he said, I want you to think about totalisms. And he said, you know, what totalisms have to have is a voice from the outside. And as an Old Testament professor, he was saying, you know, the prophets were the other voice. They came from the outside of the totalism to speak to the totalism, to hear from another place. That's the way Brueggemann put it. And Brueggemann also said, all totalisms are lethal. They're actually destructive because they deny individual humanity and they exclude thoughts that do not contribute to the outward unity of the group. Now, of course, if you know anything about political history, you know on every continent and in every age, leaders of political units have always thought to bring about totalitarianism, which is a political totalism, because when you have unity and conformity in a nation, it's easier to direct them. When you have a fractured or fragmented, philosophically fragmented nation, it's very difficult to lead them. So all leaders are always trying to bring conformity, and they usually do it through totalistic methodologies. That's what you're living in. You're living in a totalism. You say, really? Yes. Just read your newspaper Listen to the news, not too much of it, but just enough to begin, to begin to infer what are the totalistic concepts here where it's completely unacceptable to think a certain way, where you're immediately excluded if you think a certain way. And then isn't it true that our totalism, our, whether it's our, uh, as Eisenhower said, you know, our military a financial uh, empire that, that, that we work with, or whether it's a secular, postmodern, philosophical totalism, or whether it's a, uh, an elitism totalism, or whether around many of our tables last week uh, were, was being said a white supremacy totalism. What is the totalism that we live in? What are the other voices that we need to hear from the outside? Paul is saying, don't be conformed to any of these worldly totalisms. Don't allow it to happen. 
And if the gospel of Christ is not at the center of your totalism, you can count on it. You're going to have to be the voice from the outside. It's because they're all lethal and they're all going to decay. They're all going to be corrupt. So every human-based totalism is lethal and requires the voice from the outside. And you're in the perfect situation if you're a follower of Jesus Christ to be that person. So he's saying, first of all, renounce the world's mentality. Renounce the totalisms that are around you. But notice, secondly, verse 2b, receive the Lord's mentality. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? So you can discern what is the will of God. So you renounce the totalisms of the world, but then you look to the Lord for His guidance. Now, here's what Brueggemann never said, and I doubt he's ever written it. I haven't read all that. He's written 102 books, so I haven't read all of his books. But he didn't say it last week, and nobody else in the room said it. I mean, it was a dominantly sort of a liberal Protestant environment, so that gives you, gives you kind of a feel for the ethos in the room. But <clears throat> no one in the room said it. Brueggemann didn't say it. Here's what the Bible teaches us. You not only renounce the human totalisms of this world, but you must discover the God-centered totalism that's real. In other words, here's where I disagree with Brueggemann. All totalisms are not lethal. There's one totalism that is life-giving, that is pure and is holy. And here's what it's called, the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is totalitarian in His commands and His demands upon your life. He asks for your body. He asks for your soul. He asks for your aspirations. He asks for your future. He asks for your past. He asks for your eternity. He asks for your time. He asks for your family. He asks for your career. He demands it all. It's totalistic. And it's the healthiest thing you could ever do with your life. And the most wonderful and beautiful and good thing you could ever encourage someone else to do is to submit themselves to the constraints of the Christ-centered totalism. This is what sometimes the liberals leave out. And what it leads to is a cynicism, a negativism about the world. Gentlemen, of course we're negative about everything that's evil. And evil suffuses every human institution. Of course we're negative about that. But we're dominantly positive. And the reason is the Lord by His grace, when we came to know Him and walk with Him, gave us a grand vision for a new heavens and a new earth. Gave us a grand vision for a great commission to take this good news of the reigning king all around the world to challenge every human totalism on every continent on the planet through 2,000 years. We have this vision. It's a very positive vision. How do we get this vision? The Apostle Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. You have to be transformed so that no longer are you devoted to some lethal, corrupt human totalism, which is self-centered, but you're now completely committed to the kingdom of God where Jesus Christ reigns. And you're constantly imagining, you're using your imagination to say, what should that look like in my workplace? What should that look like in my family? How should my church look? How should this city look with Christ at the center and upon the throne? That's the way the Christian is thinking. By the renewal of his mind, you begin thinking. How do you do this? To renew your mind, let me mention about four things. 
Number one, you've got to be a student of the Word of God. Where are we? Where is this kingdom revealed to us? Is it not clearly in the Scriptures? How can an Old Testament professor not talk about the kingdom of God that the prophets were speaking about? What is this other voice from another place? It's the voice of God from the kingdom of God. That's what it is. And the entire Old Testament has a complaint. Of course it's a complaint. And of course it's against the totalisms. But it's coming from the perspective of a total commitment to God in His kingdom. There's a grand vision in the Old Testament. Then what happens when you get to the New Testament? Here's the king. Let me present him to you. Behold, the king, the son of God, the son of man. Here he is. The king is being introduced to us physically, visibly. That's what the New Testament is doing and bringing this kingdom to full flower. So you've got to read your Bibles and got to be a student of your Bible all your life. And so you're continually spiraling upward. Yes, I know some of you are older, say, I can't remember a thing. Well, you remember more than you think. And of course you keep forgetting. The same time you're learning, you're forgetting, but you're spiraling up this way. You forget a couple of things and you get three more. You forget a couple of things, you get three more. And you just slowly make your way up the staircase, spiraling around, spiraling up instead of spiraling down. And as you get older, gentlemen, you should become wiser because you've read and reread and reread the Bible. And you've taken the Bible and applied it to the different decades of your life. And when you're reading a text in your 20s, it'll be read a little differently when you get to your 40s. Have you noticed this? That when you get into some of the other issues of life, you'll see things differently. That's the reason that we need every generation around these tables. We need, to, we need to be communicating with people from different decades so that we can hear the Bible in different generational contexts. So we study the Bible. Secondly, we prayerfully contemplate the Bible. We ask God to show us what it means for us. Reading this text today, what does it mean for you in your workplace? So you're praying Asking God to give you a renewed mind. Behold, all things have become new, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. What's the newness of your mind looking like? Thirdly, you learn to read in areas that will inform you about the various aspects of life from the perspective of a renewed mind. So it depends on what you're studying. If it's politics, you learn to read people who are thinking from the Christ-centered perspective. If you, if you enjoy politics, don't go do that without training yourself. How to think like a Christian for heaven's sakes. So if you have an interest in sports, study the Christian perspective on sports. There is one, you know. Maybe you haven't thought about it. Everything you do is thought about from the angle of the Christian. You have to read broadly. Fourthly, I was going to mention uh, you need to listen to wise people. It's amazing what you can learn by listening to people that you perceive are wise. And what does that lead to? It leads to being able to discern what is the will of God, verse 2b. That's what you're shooting for, discerning the will of God, His acceptable, holy, pleasing will. What is it? The Bible, prayer, books written by wise people, and relationships with wise men. And through debriefing them and through living life under the banner of God's love and His Word, you grow in wisdom. You should expect not only to grow in age, you should expect not only that your hair gets whiter and your step gets shorter and slower, 
but that your wisdom is growing. That's what you should expect. It should happen, shouldn't it? Why should we go backwards? Why should we stay flat? We should be growing in wisdom. That's how you do it. Paul says, I'm pleading with you. Don't be conformed to everything around you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, lastly, we have about five minutes to deal with this. Let's talk about the modality of the sacrifice, and that's your service. How do you offer your bodies as living sacrifices? The first thing he mentions here is your service to the body of Christ. Now, in order to do that, notice, first of all, that we must assess ourselves honestly, verses 3 through 5. Assess yourself honestly. How important is this? Men are not useful when they don't see themselves as they really are. If you think you have more than you've got, you're dangerous. If you think you have less than you've got, you're useless. You don't want to be dangerous or useless. You want to know exactly what you've got. And now you know what to offer. It's just that simple. And men make both mistakes. Those who are more narcissistic think they've got more than they've got. And they make claims and promises they can't keep because they assume they've got power to make America great. Sure, you're going to do that. The only way you can try to do it is to be a Nazi and break all the rules, democratic rules that are in our country. You, you, Paul, the, great, the great temptation of politics is to make promises you can't keep. And that's the reason that narcissists often are, are drawn to politics because you get to make these grand statements that are way beyond your ability or power to perform. Be careful in your workplace. Know who you are. Don't make promises you can't keep. Don't vaunt yourself to someone because you're trying to get a job. Don't overstate what you can do or who you are. I don't care what the job is. It's not worth your integrity to be sacrificed. You keep your integrity. You're a Christian man. So you're going to have the renewed mind. You're going to come to this situation differently than other people come to that job interview. So we don't think too much of ourselves. We also don't think too little of ourselves. Men with low self-esteem tend to do this. They tend to think too little of themselves. And why do they enjoy doing that? They enjoy doing it because if I convince you I'm not able to do something, you won't ask me to do it. It's kind of like the reason men never learn how to operate the dishwasher. You know, you just can't, you just can't do it. Well, that's convenient. <laughs> La-dee-da. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out. And so people will claim that they don't have abilities or gifts to do things because, frankly, dang it, they just don't want to do it. And so they downmouth about themselves, and it keeps them out of obligations. And the reason I know that one is because that was my technique until I became a Christian, seriously. And I've been working on it ever since. And I realized that I was fearful, and I wasn't, I wasn't opening to the possibility that I might do this, that, or the other because I was fearful of being thrust into obligations that I didn't think I could perform. Anybody identify with that? And here's what Paul is saying. You've got to assess yourself accurately for the glory of God so that you will not either be dangerous or be useless. Now look what he says. First of all, it's before God. He says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What is sober judgment? Sober judgment is judging like God judges. So a humble man is a man who sees himself as he is in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. 
The humble man sees himself as he is in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. That means I don't claim I have something that I don't honestly think before God I have, and neither do I disclaim something that I honestly believe before God that he's given me. So both will be true. You assess yourself in the presence of God. Who are you in the presence of God? That's who you are. Secondly, we do it in community. So you find out who you are in community. You know, it's useful to take tests like Strength Finder or some of the spiritual gifts tests that people take. Those are all valuable. You're trying to figure out what are your strengths and weaknesses. But gentlemen, honestly, you can't figure this out by taking tests. The primary way in which you figure out how you're gifted and how you can serve is to start serving. Is to belong to a community called the church. And you involve yourself vitally in that church and you seek to serve people and in seeking to serve them, they direct you. It's a combination of your self-assessment before God and their assessment of you as you're living your life. So why am I a preacher? Honestly, it's not because of self-assessment. <laughs> I promise you that. It's because I was told to by the church. And then later on, I realized, you know what? They saw some teaching things and maybe preaching and pastoral gifts I didn't even see. And I'm sure I didn't see them because I didn't want to see them. I didn't want to do this. And so I was suppressing, maybe, I'm, I'm speculating, I think I was suppressing things that others were able to see better. And the only way I found that out was just getting in the church and trying to be useful. And, of course, that meant being a deacon and visiting people in the hospital and teaching the junior highs, getting involved in youth ministry, ushering in the church. I just did a whole bunch of whatever needed to be done. I just did it. And that's how I ended up here. And I'm saying to you, you don't just get off by yourself. You do get off by yourself. But you don't only get off by yourself. You get in community and then listen to your brothers and sisters. And then he says, B, verses 6 through 8, devote yourself fully. So first of all, you have to assess yourself honestly, and then you devote yourself fully. Fully to what? To exercising the gifts that he has given you, whether it's teaching or prophecy, whether it's leadership or encouragement, exhortation, or whether it's deeds of mercy or counting the offering on Sunday, whatever it is, do it with zeal. You're serving the Lord. You're using the gifts He's given you to serve one another and, of course, to serve the community and the world. Now, let us notice, lastly, these four things. We've got two minutes. First of all, our gifts differ. That's clear in this text and in the other texts that are in your scriptures about spiritual gifts that I've listed there. Our gifts differ. Don't expect to be like somebody else. The Lord has peculiarly gifted you. Secondly, our gifts are apportioned by God. Don't complain. If you're a preacher, don't complain. If you're not a preacher, don't complain. If you're a leader, don't complain. If you're not a leader uh, up front, don't complain. God gifts every one of us differently. It's His gifting. You may suppress it and others have to help bring it out. That's one thing. But you don't create it. Only God gives it. So you're discovering what God has given. You're not creating new spiritual gifts. They're apportioned by Him. Thirdly, our gifts are intended to serve and edify others, not to gratify yourself. 
Oh, it feels so good. I just, you know, the reason I love to help people, it just makes me feel so good. Well, I'm glad it makes you feel good. But that's not the reason for your gift of mercy. Your gift of mercy is to edify the body of Jesus Christ and to encourage them to be more like Jesus. That's the reason you do it. And then fourthly and lastly, our gifts must be developed and deployed. I promise you, you would not want to hear me preach as I did in my first sermon. I promise you. You'd never have me back. It'd be the last amen talk I ever gave. If I gave a talk like the first one I gave. So I had to devote myself to the teaching ministry. Now for 40 years, I have to learn and grow. And every time I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm having to start. I feel like I have to start over from scratch every time. Go back to fundamentals. What does it mean to teach the word of God? Well, whatever your gift is, you're the same way. You have to keep studying the gift, how to use the gift he's given you. And then you have to look for ways to deploy it. If you're gifted in such a way, if the community is telling you you're gifted, then say, how can I serve? Where can I use this gift? You're asking them to show you how to be helpful. And then you're deploying the gift you have while you're learning and studying the whole way along. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. Do you see how physical it is? Do you see how gritty it is? It's not just great holy thoughts. It's a holy life. It's sacrificial. A holy sacrifice unto the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the high calling that is upon our lives. Not only to understand, that'd be one thing, just to understand the gospel. But then to put it into practice, to be your salt and light in a corrupt world, what a calling. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us. This is way over our heads. Help us to know and then to practice what it means to be living sacrifices unto you. In the name of our great sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.